Good morning. Welcome to Jay's Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. I am a little out of sorts this morning for two reasons. The first, as you may have experienced on Friday, Canada's playing a FIBA World Cup of basketball game right now. They are trailing Latvia 27-17 in the second quarter. You can check that out on Sportsnet, but that is a mild distraction. Mild is is probably an understatement. Uh, The other reason is that not exactly sure how to handle the Toronto Blue Jays just playing and winning a normal game of baseball against a lesser team the way you're supposed to beat a lesser team. You get ahead early enough. You take advantage of some of your opportunities. You chase a pitcher early who's not having a great game. You have enough of a lead that you don't have to play the bullpen as if it's the last game you'll ever play. It's pretty comfortable. Within that, they got some pretty good performances from that bullpen. Trevor Richards gave him two perfect innings with just 22 pitches. Genesis Cabrera, perfect nine-pitch eighth inning. Uh, Jordan Hicks walked a guy but comes up with the save nonetheless. And some continued, not hot hitting, but reasonable hitting. Danny Jansen hits a career-high 16th home run that we got to hear Pete Walker do the call of because he was on with uh, Dan and Buck at the time that it was hit. David Schneider was in the lineup. Ernie Clement was in the lineup, which is uh, something we haven't seen very much of, but something we'll see a little bit more of moving forward. Uh, lots to get to from last night. Ben Nicholson-Smith going to join us in a moment here. But if you were coming out of that Jays win, a, a normal style, rare for them, and optimistic, I hope you didn't look at the out-of-town scoreboards because, look, it's always better to win than lose because you'd lose a game if not. But Every relevant team to the Blue Jays also won last night. Houston beat Boston. Texas beat the Mets. Baltimore beat the White Sox. Seattle beat Oakland. Tampa Bay was off, uh, so you gain a half game there. But everyone around them wins as well. Jays remain two and a half back of the wild card right now at 72 and 60. Uh, Their odds to make the playoffs per fan graphs this morning, 48.8%. Up from 48.5 yesterday. So there you go. A little 0.3% increase. There was also a bunch of injury news yesterday. We'll get a bunch more injury news today as well as Bobachet was headed for an MRI. We'll break all of that down with Ben Nicholson-Smith of Sportsnet.ca, MLB editor there. Also your color analyst for this series down at Rogers Center. Ben, how you doing, man? Doing well, Blake. Good to be uh, joining you here. And and like you said, it was a pretty... uh pretty routine win. I mean, I think they probably would have wanted like four or five more runs. Sure. But, uh, under the circumstances, they'll take it. Yeah. I mean, look, you had Bowden Francis warming up and he didn't get a chance at another three inning save, which of course we, we all like, and I, I would have got a kick out of, but you didn't have to ask Jordan Romano to do too much. You didn't have to go to too many bullpen arms. It was a good one. You are on the call for these games and you've like, I have done a bunch throughout the course of the season. Um, how, how did last night feel? Obviously not, a world beater of an opponent, but as we're getting later in the year here and the urgency is going up, are you feeling that tension when you sit down to do the calls? Um, I, I do think that there's, there's no question the stakes are high. There's no question that these games matter. And so I think from that standpoint, um, it actually makes it pretty compelling. Um, it's certainly, uh, I think a lot more pressure for the players. This is needless to say than for anyone else in that building. Right. So for those of us who are observing, it's just the baseball game We're we're observing it. We're trying to add some commentary, add some context, add some color to what's happening. But, um, you know, I, I certainly don't take on, I try not to take on the stress that the team is facing, uh, when it comes to what I'm doing. So, just had a good time there with Ben. And, you know, I will say, though, last year I was on for the first playoff game 
um, and with with Wagner. And in that case, you can't. I couldn't help but but feel some of the stress because it was such high stakes. And it was, of course, that was the game that Alec Manoa struggled and Luis Castillo pitched amazing. And that was a game where I felt the tension. But last night was just a fun game at the ballpark. And, you know, the Jays ended up winning. So obviously you do a lot of prep when you come into these series. And in doing your prep, you see a Washington Nationals team that until very recently was at the bottom of the National League East standings, but it's a team that had one of the better records in the NL since the all-star break turned around. They came into this series having won 11 of their last 15. Some of that, of course, you know, the ebbs and flows of baseball season They're they're playing some other lesser teams, but when you dug in and were prepping for this series, did they strike you as a team that, you know, is, it should be more of a challenge than maybe the full season record suggests. Absolutely. And I think, you know, right at the top of the order, we got a pretty good look as to mm-hmm. why that is the case um, from the jump. And and CJ Abrams was great yesterday, making some really good contact and just creating havoc on the basis as well. The Blue Jays really had no answer for him um, as he was able to steal three bags. So, you know, that's a that's a core piece for the Nationals as they move ahead. And you obviously gave up Juan Soto to get CJ Abrams. So, you would expect that this is a player that should have a lot of talent, but man, he looks great. 22 years old, tons of speed, still, uh, you know, made a mistake defensively. So there's some room for growth there as you'd expect, but you know, that is a, a really compelling player and Lane Thomas too. I mean, not the same category of player, certainly a lot older, um, former Jays draft pick, but he's a he's having a really good season. So they've got some good players to continue building around. And uh, I mean, they're nowhere near uh, the Toronto Blue Jays as far as overall talent, in my opinion, watching them yesterday. But I, I still think that it's a it's a more competitive game than what we might have expected a few months ago. So obviously the Jays, the talking point right now is you can only take one game at a time. You can only win one game at a time. But yesterday you chased the starter in the second inning. The bullpen's got to give you six innings of work if you're Washington. They're already running with a short bullpen because they're running a six-man rotation right now. And they're playing their eighth game day in a row today. Um, Is it, I mean, are you of the mind that it's not exactly true that you every game is is just one game you know you can take a bite out of them later in the series with what they did yesterday and again not like they went gangbusters and scored 100 runs and forced a pitcher a uh, position player to pitch but in chasing Josiah Gray early with with a pretty clear game plan to be passive against him given some of his control issues yeah i i think there's some merit to that theory um just making them use more arms and tiring those guys out i think we're at a point in the season you know, for, for basically every team where the pitchers have been used so much to get to August the 29th that they any time that they can get a little bit of a break is is massive. And any time that you're asking them to go two in a row, three or four, there's just that much extra stress. And and that's where the Blue Jays are as well, where you look at, at Jordan Hicks, who's now gone three of four. I'm presuming he's not available today for the Blue Jays. And then you have you know, some of those guys who were presumed down yesterday, like a Mesa, like a Jimmy Garcia, Jordan Romano, they're probably back into the equation today. But even then, you don't want to have to use them if you're the Blue Jays. And this is where, you know, of course, it's tough to do when Bo- when Matt Chapman and possibly Bo Bichette are on the sidelines. But man, they just could really use, and, and I know every team could, but they could really use one of those seven-run wins where you use Bowden Francis to close it down Jose Barrios and Francis, let's say, cover the whole game. Then you go into the finale with a fully rested bullpen 
off day Thursday, you're good to go. But you know what? It's a point in the year where you've got to win the games in front of you, to your point, and they can't afford to sit there on their hands and let a game get away from them. They can't, certainly. And at this point, you know, we heard, and maybe it's a, a bit of an overstatement, but we, we've we heard, you know, how many games they have to win during this 15-game stretch or this 12-game stretch to keep themselves uh, in the right spot to to compete in this wild card race and obviously you know you you said that Washington is a better team than the record but they're still a team the Blue Jays should take games against they're headed into a couple of series against lesser teams uh coming out of this one um so the the lineup yesterday and you know they, they this isn't the only reason the Blue Jays had a, a decent game and again six runs is not uh is not 12 runs is not 15 runs but you get contributions from David Schneider again with a, a single and a walk you get contributions from Ernie Clement who had a pair of hits. Um, we heard yesterday that Matt Chapman will go on the IL. Uh, he has a finger sprain. Doesn't sound like it's it's anything, you know, too, too bad other than, hey, it, this this keeps nagging and we should probably just sit him down here for a little bit. Um, there is a Bo Bichette component to this as well that we'll touch on in a minute. But when it comes to just the Matt Chapman absence, if we assume Bo Bichette's back at, at some point reasonably soon, um, are the, not that the Jays have a lot of options anyway, but should and will the edict be, hey, lean offense replacing that Matt Chapman spot given where this team struggles have come? I think so, uh, you know, for a couple reasons. One, you're never going to replace his defense. It's just not possible. And especially with this roster, it's not going to be possible because they don't have, out of any of those options, no one is going to be a, a great defensive third baseman. Um, maybe they'll make a great defensive player too and that would be awesome but they're not going to offer the same kind of consistency that Chapman does so then you're picking between offensive options and you're doing it at a time that the Blue Jays really need a lot of offense I mean that's been a story all season definitely the case right now so I think you go with whoever can give you the best at bats and right now to me that's Davis Schneider I mean Clement was great in getting a couple hits yesterday putting the bat on the ball that's what you want to see from him but Davis Schneider has consistently, you know, not only made contact the other way, like we saw yesterday with an opposite field single, but he has had really good at-bats where he's working counts and not expanding his zone. And obviously, he's got the power with the five bombs. So, you know, Davis Schneider, to me, should be the primary replacement at third base. I think that's how it'll unfold. But, man, I was also pretty intrigued to see Vlad Jr. taking some grounders yesterday at third base. And it's more of a late game thing, but they are keeping all their options open right now. So I guess the scenario for that, and I'm sure you and Ben Wagner played through some of them yesterday on air, but the scenario for that is, hey, the Jays are facing a lefty starter today and tomorrow. Maybe there's a case where Brandon Belt doesn't start. He enters as a pinch hitter rather than starting as a DH. And then to keep both bats in the lineup or because your bench is a little short with Bo Bichette banged up, then Vlad moves over to third because you have to find a way to keep both of those guys in the lineup. Is that... is Belt pinch hitting and needing to stay in the game pretty much the only scenario you could see where Vlad's at, at third base? Yeah, I mean, you never know. There could always be some sort of, uh, you know, injury that shifts things. Um, but yeah, I think like, say for example, Espinal starting at third and Clements at short and Schneider's at second. Um, yeah, you've got a lefty in. So Kiermaier or Varsho or both are on the bench. Then late game comes around. You pinch hit with belt for Espinal. Espinal's out. Then you just keep belt at first. You move Vladdy to third. That covers you for a couple innings. So, uh, you know, that's probably the situation where it could come up. Um, you know, ask Vladdy how he felt over there at third. 
And he said it was fine. And he certainly looked good. The arm really plays. He's got, um, you know, really, really good arm strength over there. The reads are probably going to be tough off the bat. He's used to first base. So that's going to be an adjustment. No question about that. But he's a really good athlete, really good arm. Um, you could do it for a few innings. And um, I'm kind of intrigued. You know, it's it's not plan A for the Blue Jays, but I'd be pretty intrigued to see that play out. It would be uh, it would be a lot of fun, uh, you know. Also, maybe there's a scenario where, hey, you laid out that they could really use a blowout. Maybe that's a scenario where you get them a couple reps there, just uh, just to shake the rust up. We also saw Whit Merrifield getting a couple reps there, but given that um, Vladimir Guerrero Jr., Santiago Espinal, Kevin Vigio, Ernie Clement, Davis Schneider have all played that position more recently. And based on their substitutions and things like that, I think they like Witt's defense in left field better than all of those guys and his defense at second base better than all of them. But Espinal, probably not a scenario where Whit Merrifield ends up there. I think that's pretty fair. I mean, Whit Merrifield's been great for this team in the in the role of second base slash left field. I don't think there's a huge need to, to really push that. I, you know, I also think... Uh, probably from an arm strength standpoint, that might be a stretch. Um, whereas Vladdy really, really does have the arm. Um, Merrifield, it, you know, he's going to have the decision making. He's going to have the the range, um, you know, for for third base to get to balls. But you know, I think that the arm you're probably looking at at Vladdy for having the best arm out of anyone. Yeah, I think so. That's that's uh, certainly the. I mean, we've seen it in the past before. And yeah, if you are if you are moved to second base at some point, some of these guys came up as second baseman. But if you get moved off of third for second base, that tends to be uh, a part of why. Okay, so that's the Chapman trickle down. Now, in a scenario where Bo Bichette misses more time here, he's set. He was headed for an MRI yesterday. We didn't get an update after the game. Uh, I guess, first of all, what, what is your read on the blue Jays concern level with, with Bo Bichette's squad? And then, you know, what would the trickle down from there be? Is it just the conversation we just had about third base, but also for shortstop. And there are two spots every day. Yeah. Which is not ideal. And no. you really would be relying on Ernie Clement then uh, defensively and offensively. And, you know, that's a downgrade in, in, both departments. Bo Bichette has really handled short well this year defensively. He's proven himself to be fully capable as a major league shortstop. So, you know, to say nothing of his offense. So, yeah, it would be it would be really tough. Um, still waiting on the specifics from uh, that MRI. Um, so we'll learn a bit more. It's an interesting point in the season, though, because we're just a couple days away from rosters expanding by one. So if there's ever a time that you don't actually need to IL a guy, then this is it. I mean, if it's April, maybe you are a bit more quick to go to the IL because you want to make sure that someone's fully healed and you don't have as many roster spots. So keeping an injured guy uh, on your bench is is not really that viable. But once you get to the point that you know, if you have 28 roster spots, you have 14 position players, five on the bench every day. I mean, that's a pretty comfortable spot to get to um, from the standpoint of, hey, we don't have to use one of these guys and he can actually just be there essentially recovering. But if Bo Bichette needs, and this is speculating, right? We don't know exactly how long he's going to need. He might be back there today. But if there's a scenario where he needs six days, I don't think you IL him because you want him back on day seven. You want him pinch hitting on day six. And so to me, I, I think you you try to stay away from the IL 
um, even if it means you run a little bit of a shorter bench. And it's also, you know, that, that decision is a little more difficult in the era where you can only backdate IL stints so much. If he's day-to-day, you can't go five days and then be like, ah, you know what, now... Now we'll do it, and he'll still be back in five days. You have to be a little careful with that. Uh, So I'm with you. That's a good use of the extra roster spot, especially considering you just laid out, hey, how comfortable are you with five bench guys? Jays have very, very rarely used even their fourth bench guy. So, you know, you're pretty comfortable there. You also have an off day Thursday. So you could be looking at, hey, even if Bo's out the rest of this series, you get him down Thursday, and suddenly he's had, you know, four or five days off here. Um in terms of the extra roster spot, if let's assume Bo Bichette's healthy, um, they already have Ernie Clement up as the Matt Chapman move. Uh, Nathan Lucas make the most sense to you, or is there a scenario where you know you you could see one of the more buzzier prospects getting a, a quick look here with Chapman down? Yeah, it's an interesting question, and in talking to John Schneider about this a couple times in the last week or so. The Jays have at least considered it. Like they're they're not ruling out a Barger or an Aralvis Martinez. And it's gotta be tempting on the one hand, especially when they're looking for offense. But you know, at the same time, I think they're just gonna go with a Nathan Lucas. And I think they're just gonna go with guys who because it's a big ask, right? It's a really big ask to say to Aralvis Martinez, all right, man, like here you are. Welcome to the big leagues. By the way, we need your offense. We need it now. And you better not make any mistakes on defense because we are we are operating on this razor's edge. And so, you know, welcome, but also don't mess up and hit some homers. Like, it's a lot to put on a young player. And I, I think, you know, if the Jays were 10 games ahead or 10 games behind, this would be a great time to bring some of those guys up and get them some seasoning. But playing where they are, I, I don't know. I, I don't know where you, like, maybe you have a different perspective on this, Blake. But to me, like... I, I think you kind of roll with your big leaguers and your guys who have who have been in the majors to some extent this year instead of asking someone to debut in this precarious of a team position. I, yeah, I think I would feel differently were Davis Schneider and Ernie Clement not already up. Um, I, I would maybe lean toward that. But you have Davis Schneider who, you know, I think has an opportunity here to run with it every day and really show something for this year and, and make that early case for 2024 Ernie Clement I I know he's you know looked at as kind of an org depth guy at times but he's also hitting 350 at AAA everyone's hitting 300 at AAA but he's hitting 350 and is still only 27 it's not out of the realm of possibility he's auditioning for a bench role next year as well Um, so if those guys weren't already in the mix I'd say yeah you should probably uh, slip some of this playing time to a younger guy and see what they have there Um, you know if the bench were already with a Nathan Lucas and a Tyler Heineman on it or something like that, I'd be like, yeah, I get someone in there who can help you. But I think David Schneider already kind of scratches that itch um, to you, Ben, when you look at David Schneider's opportunity here, obviously he's delivered whenever he's gotten a window here. Um, his bat is what is going to get him and keep him in the major leagues, of course, but the ability to show that he can handle third base a little bit. um, How important is that to you when you pencil up 2024? Because the Jays have potential holes at third, second, you know, left field DH and a lot of their closest prospects to the major leagues have third base experience, but aren't necessarily everyday third baseman. You're going to need to value some positional flexibility there. Um, how big is it to, to you and to this team that David Schneider can show defensively? He can handle third base a little bit this next week or two. 
Yeah, I, I think it's I think it's really big. I mean, uh, you know, obviously most important it's it's right now and winning these games and backfilling for Matt Chapman and and potentially getting some big hits. And then moving forward, I think it helps. Um, to me, you know, if I'm looking ahead at 2024 and David Schneider's role, I probably see him more as like a Whip Merrifield bouncing between second base and left field, maybe a little bit of third mixed in, maybe some DH mixed in. I see him, you know, at this point, probably a really strong candidate to get a lot of playing time. Uh, that's not a <laughs> controversial opinion, given the way his first 12 games have gone in the major leagues. And, you know, he's he's going to get more chances down the stretch here. They need him right now. I mean, it's this is not a just a nice story anymore. This is a team that's lost some big position players that doesn't have a lot of offense. They need him. But yeah, moving forward, I, I think you try to keep him where he can do his best work defensively. So for me, that's probably second and left field. But who knows? He's surprised us already offensively. Maybe he can surprise us defensively and really show something at third base. Maybe. Um, you know, I'd, I'd probably not bet on it, but... You know, hey, it's a it's an opportunity here, and stranger things have happened. Guys have figured out positions uh, before. Okay, so Ben, if we're you know kind of on the Nathan Lucas trail with the extra position player spot, we all pretty much know that Chad Green will be the pitcher on the roster expansion spot. He's going to pitch again Wednesday. There's an off day Thursday. Rosters expand Friday. This is nice and tidy for Chad Green's return. Um, however, there's another deadline coming up, and that is. Thursday, if a player is to be playoff eligible, he'd have to be on the 40-man as of Thursday. The Blue Jays currently have an open 40-man spot. That is Chad Green's spot. Eventually, he'll need a 40-man spot when he comes off the 60-day IL. This is pretty niche, but when you look at the organization and this AAA team, is there a case to be made that, you know, whether it's Hagen Danner hitting the 60-day IL because we haven't had an update on him and we're, we're getting close to the end of you know, the, the runway anyway, where the difference between 15 and 60 day IL doesn't matter a ton. Uh, if a guy's going to need real rehab time, but you look at Hagen Danner to the 60 day IL or, or potentially someone else being DFA'd so that someone else, you know, Cam Eden as a pinch running specialist, Connor cook as an extra bullpen weapon, whatever um, can have some playoff eligibility. Is that something you'd be looking at here? Or you stick with the 40 man you've got. I like that idea. Yeah. I think that's a good idea. I mean, you never know what can happen. And this is your last chance to give yourself one more option. So Cam Eden, for anyone who doesn't know, Cam Eden, an outfielder, um, upper minors, a lot of speed, um, not necessarily a lot of power, but a lot of speed. So Cam Eden could help you. And that's probably a lot more likely than Hagen Danner. So at that point, it might not be, you know, he, obviously when we're projecting playoff rosters, if they even get to the playoffs, Cam Eden isn't on version 1.1, but <laughs> you never know what could happen in the next month or so. So I, I think, yeah, they should probably add Eden um, or, or you know, here's the other thing. Like you could also go outside the organization. If you don't want to put a guy on the 40 man, if you're not sure you want to carry him on the 40 man all winter, then you could go outside the organization. And in years past around this time, they've looked at guys like Billy Hamilton. I want to say it was last year. It was either last year or the year before that they had interest in Billy Hamilton and they were talking to him about a deal. So, And if I'm not mistaken, Hamilton's out there again as a free agent. So there are ways to do this where you just add one more player because you know their, their main spots are spoken for. Um, and, and you know maybe they can get more production out of these guys. Maybe not. But mostly this roster is is what it is. And yet at the edge of that roster, maybe you can find a tiny little bit of an upgrade and a guy like, uh, you know, a speed first guy like Hamilton, who was just released by the White Sox. 
that's one direction that they could look at. Yeah, released last week by the White Sox after appearing in a couple of games. And uh, yeah, last summer, uh, Shai Davidi reported uh, late August that the Jays were taking a look at him. Cam Eden, for anyone who doesn't know, he's 25. He's not really a prospect at this point, but he's 46 for 50 stealing bases. And everything I've heard is that as far as guys in the higher levels of the minors, he's also their best defensive outfielder. So, um, you know, not not a lot of scenarios where you want him playing, but uh, he is a... Uh, he is a name. Okay, so Kevin Gosman last night. Let's uh, let's do a quick take on last night. Um, he had another short outing, only five innings. He said after kind of tongue-in-cheek that he was lucky to get through five. He referred to stressful pitches that he was having to throw. And look, this is a couple starts in a row where he hasn't gone super deep. He hasn't been super pitch efficient. Um, over his last four starts, opponents are swinging at his fastball 55% of the time, which is way up from 43% of the time in the chunk of the season prior to, the, to these last four games. Uh, what are you seeing with Gosman? Are you concerned at all that there is a fatigue element here, given that he's not not been bad in prior Septembers, but slowed down a little bit in prior Septembers? Yeah, you know, I think we've seen pretty consistently in the course of this season, at least, that when he gets an extra day or so, that can benefit him. I think that's pretty standard at this point in the season for pitchers taking on his kind of of workload, that if you can get them an extra day, that's a good thing. And with the off day coming up, then that will allow him an extra day before going into uh, Colorado, where he's from, of course. And he said that, you know, he might just not throw aside, um, especially as the Blue Jays get used to the thin air. Kevin Gosman more mm. used to that than most, but it's still a physical adjustment. So he might not throw aside. That might give him just a little bit of a breather um, before that next start um, in Denver on Sunday. Um, but yeah, it's it's going to be uh, it's going to be a grind for these guys. And I think that. Kevin Gosman, to me, this is part of a normal ebb and flow of a season, of a really, really good season where he's going to be a Cy Young finalist in all likelihood, along with Garrett Cole and someone else. And so, you know, this is, uh, yeah, of course, you'd love to have gotten six innings out of him. You'd love to have, you know, limited that damage and not allowed those last couple runs to score um, with that ground ball at the first baseline. But again, it was a ground ball at the first baseline. Like Gosman was still up to 90 Eight, I saw, I don't know if he touched 99, but really throwing dominant stuff with a great splitter. I, I just, to me, I'm like, this guy's been an ace all season. Um, and it's, you know, even Spencer Strider, when you look at the the one guy in Major League Baseball who has more strikeouts than Kevin Gosman, even Spencer Strider, you know, he didn't get off to the greatest start this year. And he was allowing more runs than probably anyone expected him to, considering how how good his stuff is. And so, it's pretty rare to go wire to wire with, you know, just one quality start after the other. And I think that Gosman, I, I just, my concern level for him is, is very, very low. I think that is entirely fair. And again, off day Thursday and off day next Thursday, you can do some things to give guys that extra day of rest without going to an SP six who you don't have anyway, because Alec Manoa is uh, in, I don't know. He's caught in some vortex between Toronto and Buffalo at this point, And we don't know where he is or how he gets out. Uh, ben, are you, are you in Colorado? Do you have to get used to the altitude as well? I will be in Colorado okay. and um, I, yeah, I mean, I've been to, I've never been to call to Denver before. Mm. So I'm very intrigued by what the uh, thin air feels like. Well, I you're a runner too, right? Like this is going to be well, a exactly. big test for you. 
Well, I, I actually, yeah, I'm pretty intrigued to see what it's like to run up there and, and maybe I'll be way slower. So who knows? I'll tell you, I have been to Denver before and uh, yeah, it doesn't, doesn't affect your after game beer drinking or anything like that. I can't speak to how it affects your running though. <laughs> Not at all. Good. So the recovery process can, uh, can hold, uh, hold steady there. That's good. Yeah. Uh, okay. Uh, before I let you go here, lefty tonight, lefty tomorrow afternoon for this nationals team in Mackenzie Gore and Patrick Corbin. Uh, you, you obviously, you try not to sit your regulars down multiple times in a row, but Brandon belt has pretty massive platoon splits. They have given Kiermaier a lot of off days against lefties, but his stats are, are pretty solid against lefties this year. Uh, how do you manage that side of things with the double day off? And, and yeah, you have a few more bat first righty options on the bench right now uh, but their guys not as established as a Brandon Belt or, or as defensively valuable as a Kevin Kiermaier yeah I, I think that on a day like this um, you're certainly going to see Schneider and I would think either Clement or Bo Bichette um, probably Clement at shortstop then yeah Vladdy at first so you're still tilting right there um, it, yeah I mean you could give Belt a day off. I think that'd be fine. Maybe you rest Belt one and Kiermaier one. I, I haven't broken down the you know the numbers in too too much detail on on this one. Um, but yeah, what's your lean here? Yeah, I mean, I, I think you have one of Belt or Kiermaier out for each game, but I don't think I don't think you want them necessarily sitting both. I'm I'm fine with Kiermaier against lefties, and you get that defensive value anyway. But uh, yeah, I mean, Brandon Belt's numbers against left-handed pitchers are, are quite unsightly here. So um, it's also, I, I always like the value of Brandon Belt available as a pinch hitter off the bench. Whereas, you know, with some other guys who could sit, you don't get that. Um, so I don't know. I think we'll see some, some unique lineups these next two days is all. Yeah. I, yeah. I would believe that for sure. I think until you hit Bo Bichette back, it's <laughs> like, they're all going to be kind of unique lineups because plan A is... It's pretty distant anytime Boba Shets on the bench. So we'll see what it looks like. But yeah, it's uh these are these are big ones, right? Big opportunity here against the Nationals, despite the fact that they're playing better of late. And hey, uh it'll be anytime there's weird lineup stuff like that, it makes for interesting chatter on the call, which you'll be on with Ben Wagner on the Sports at Radio Network for the rest of the series. Ben Nicholson Smith, thanks for taking the time out this morning, man. Yep, you got it, Blake. Ben Nicholson-Smith of sportsnet.ca. You could also check him out on the radio call of this series with Ben Wagner. Uh, we're going to take a break, Let's flip it over to MLB Network, and we're going to talk to John Morosi. Pretty cool moment between Miguel Cabrera and Justin Verlander last night. Uh, John Morosi, obviously a Michigan guy. We'll get his take on that, and then we'll, uh, we'll whip around uh, his takes on the Blue Jays and a lot going on around Major League Baseball, as you'd expect this time of year. John Morosi of MLB Network joins us next as Jays Talk Plus continues on the Sportsnet Radio Network and Sportsnet 360. Discussing the biggest stories that matter to Toronto sports fans. The Fan Morning Show with Ailish Forfar and Justin Cuthbert. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Jay's Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. Our next guest is traveling all over Dodgers Braves coming up. And uh, that is a potential NLCS preview. If it doesn't end up being the NLCS, there's been an upset somewhere. This is baseball. That always happens, but uh, pretty cool to get a series that feels that inevitable come playoff time at this time of year. John Morosi of MLB Network joins us now. John, how fired up are you for that one? Very excited, Blake. 
Frank, and, and thanks so much for the invitation to be on the show today. Uh, this is one of my favorite weeks of the year because it really lets you set up this this thrilling conclusion of the regular season. And obviously when you've got a Braves-Dodgers showdown, uh, we've got the game Thursday night on MLB Network. So just cannot wait to see what Dodger Stadium looks like. You have not just the, the NL best record at stake in this matchup, but you've got potentially the NL MVP as well. Will Acuna or Olsen or Freeman or Betts have an MVP moment in a big game that helps to swing some votes? I think that's going to be one of the many storylines that we're watching carefully this weekend. And a, a probable pitcher is listed right now as Spencer Strider and Lance Lynn. We'll see if there's any juggling there. The Dodgers don't have a starter announced for tomorrow, so could be could be some maneuvering there. But right now it looks like a Spencer Strider start. You mentioned Acuna, despite, and this is a, a stat from our, our pal Sarah Langs, John. Last night, he ha- became the highest home run hitting 60 stolen base man of all time. He has 29 homers and 60 stolen bases, passing Ricky Henderson, who had 28 homers and 60 stolen bases a couple times. Man, how fascinating is it to you that someone is putting up a season that historic, maybe one of the very best power hitting slash speed combo seasons we've ever seen. And not only is he not a lock for the MVP, he is no longer the betting odds favorite for the first time in months. It's really interesting. And to that end, Blake, it it certainly is striking to me how much uh, we do look at wins above replacement in, in calculating that. I mean, right now, uh, he now stands third in wins above replacement on Fangraphs.com in the National League. And, and, and that might be one of the reasons why that the, uh, the betting markets have flipped a little bit to, to favor Mookie and, and, to some extent, Freddie Freeman after Mookie. It's a, it's a tough decision to where I don't really see any wrong answer here. Uh, for me, it's very difficult to – to not give it to Acuna just because of what he's meant to them all season long and just the sheer uniqueness, to your point, of the stat that Sarah Lang shared about about what Acuna's base-stealing plus home running prowess really represents. I, I do think that we're, we're approaching territory where there's no wrong answer here among, among at least these top three candidates with Mookie and Freddie and Acuna. Um, Mookie is such a unique player. And again, a, a power speed combo there. And also the base running. And, and that's where base running and stolen bases are not the same thing. Certainly stolen bases are a component of base running, but they are not everything in base running. And it's the ability to go first to third on a single, score from first on a double, um, those, those heads-up plays that are now increasingly quantifiable. And, and I, know, I know Jeff Passon made a point here recently in the last couple of days about how, in, in his viewpoint, that it's those less obvious base running metrics for both Freeman and Betts that have upped their stock relative to Acuna. And obviously the power hitting does still at this moment favor Mookie and Freeman. Mookie obviously is an extraordinary defensive outfitter. Freddie is a gold glove caliber first baseman. We are just being treated right now to, to three of the absolute best talents in the game. And this is where, as much as I'm sad and disappointed at, at the Otani arm injury like everybody else is, uh, I, I do think that the, if we're talking about Shohei a little bit less, we should not act as though we are totally bereft of superstars in this game because we've got some of the absolute greatest of all time all performing at a high level 
at the same time. So let's not, um, obviously, let's be disappointed about Shohei. We can lean into that sadness. I'm, I'm fully on board with that. But let's also realize how much, um, how much incredible talent and personality that we've got in the game right now. And what a better way to showcase it than the, the MLB Network showcase game Thursday night. Dodgers, Braves, uh, Spencer Strider on the hill to, to try to limit Mookie Betts and Freddie Freeman. And the way you set up the NL MVP race there, John, it does sound a little reminiscent of the 2012 AL MVP race where Miguel Cabrera had the triple crown and Mike Trout had the wins above replacement. And it kind of felt by the end of like, you know what? Vote either way. They're both going to be one, two. It's, uh, you know, there's no wrong answer there. And I use that comparison because pretty special night last night with Miguel Cabrera going uh, head-to-head against Justin Verlander for the last time. I know Bali Sports Detroit had a Miguel Cabrera uh, documentary out that you got a chance to watch. Um, kind of as, as we get toward closing the book on Miguel Cabrera in Detroit here, you as a Michigan guy, how are you feeling about it? How have you uh, enjoyed these kind of last big moments like, like the Verlander uh, nod, like the documentary Bally Sports put together? Sure, I appreciate the question. For me, it's it's been a great privilege to watch Miguel play for as long as I have. Uh, I got to meet him his first spring with Detroit back in 2008. Uh, I was still on the beat for the free press back then. It's a long time ago, Blake, <laughs> when you think about that amount of time. Uh, so I've, I've had a, a front row seat to his greatness for a long time. And I think throughout his career, his his memory and his recall for for how pitchers have approached him over time always stood out to me where he could set up a pitcher based on how he took a pitch how he swung at a pitch he would know what was coming almost like a great boxer he would have an idea of what the next punch was and he would already have his counter move planned out and 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 the move after the counter move would all be part of his philosophy so he he just had an incredible sense for for what that was all about i think he really improved um, defensively at his peak. He, I think he, he made himself into at least an average first baseman, maybe a, a tick above uh, for, for a brief period of time at least. And so for me, you would also just see the incredible power off the bat and, and what it looked like when he hit home runs to right field. I have this this memory in my mind of, of a walk-off that he hit against the Royals. It was interesting. There was there was actually, and here we are on the 10th anniversary of uh, the, when Fox Sports 1 launched here in the States, um, and there was actually a, a promotional commercial shoot, if you will, uh, that Miguel was starring in. And they filmed, a, they filmed him hitting a walk-off home run that was scheduled for him to, to film this and have like this commercial set up about him hitting, hitting a walk-off. And on the same weekend, he hit a walk-off <laughs> home run for real. And, and when you have this uh, life-imitating, art-imitating life conversation, who knows what that was, but it was just an amazing convergence of how he could take over games in the way that baseball players just can't. You know, if you're – if you're a stud defenseman in the NHL and you can play half the game almost, uh, you, you can take over the game. If you're LeBron James, um, if you're an NBA player at his peak, you can take over the game. If you're Giannis, you're, you're playing almost the entire game effectively. But in baseball, you've got your four or five at-bats and that's it. And yet, at his peak, he still took over the game, which, which is really a remarkable thing to say. It just doesn't happen that way in baseball. But he was so dominant. Uh, you think about the, the, the game-tying home run he hit off of Mariano Rivera 10 years ago at Yankee Stadium and, and Mariano's reaction. It was just 
Hall of Fame versus Hall of Fame and, and the reaction of the two greats. Um, I'll never forget those moments, and I feel very fortunate to have had a, to have had a front row seat for a lot of Miguel's great moments. Well, uh, I'll pivot to the Jays here, and I think most people would think the natural pivot is, well, Vlad got compared to Miguel Cabrera Jr. Blake's going to talk about Vlad now. Um, and as much as it would probably feel like Vlad getting hot could take the, the Blue Jays to a, a level uh, of looking good with consistency that they haven't reached yet this year, you tweeted something out before you came on with me. Um, you know, looking at the numbers, it kind of sounds like you think George Springer is the the straw stirring the drink here for this Blue Jays offense. I do, and I think if George finds a way to get going, and, and he's really shown some good signs the last uh, this past weekend and, and last night as well. Uh, and obviously, he's batted leadoff. He's batted in the middle of the lineup, depending on how uh, John Schneider's looking at his personnel and, and what he needs. And obviously, the, the absence of Bo last night from the lineup was uh, was glaring, and obviously, not having. Chapman in there as well is also glaring, and, and obviously we're not entirely sure how long Chapman's going to be out in, in Bo. It's certainly a, a nervous time, I know, for Jays fans. But for me, even with those two guys in the lineup, you need Springer, and without them, you really need Springer. And so uh, with him driving in a run last night, um, I, as I mentioned in, in, in my post, they've, they've won – basically 70% of the games in which he has driven in a run this season. And whether he's batting first or fifth or anywhere else, he is so important. He, he is the one that I think is the difference between the Jays being a decent team and being a playoff team. There's not a lot of time left now. There's only one month of baseball to go. And the Jays have, have played themselves into what I would describe as an unfavorable situation with respect to the AL wildcard standings. They can hope. That, that the Rangers continue to free fall or they can hope that Houston or Seattle uh, all of a sudden has a, a terrible month of September. But the reality is the Jays no longer control their own destiny. They did for a long time, and they, they simply frittered away too many winnable series. And, and they now are where they are. And, and they're going to need their superstars to really carry them. And, and obviously not having Chapman is a huge Minus, and, and we'll see what happens with Bo. But amid all that uncertainty, Springer has to be his all-star self. They absolutely need him to be at that level again because if he's not, I, I just don't see how you can count on uh, some of the depth pieces that you've got to, to carry you through. Schneider's been an amazing story, and he batted clean up yesterday, drove in another run. He's been extraordinary. He really has. But I, I just don't know if at the end of the day – um, the Jays are going to be able to say that, that they need a, a rookie to keep his amazing streak going for them to have a legitimate chance of making the playoffs. So, John, when you look at that reality for the Blue Jays, that they are two and a half games back, that they don't control their own destiny now, that you know there is this level of urgency for the entire month of September ahead, and you look at you know, where expectations were coming into this season, the fact that they had gone from just missing the playoffs to making it and being, uh, you know, losing in the wild card, but at least making the playoffs. This season was supposed to be a big step forward for them. They have the number two pitching staff ERA in all of baseball. They're top five with rotation, top five with the bullpen. Only Seattle's been better preventing runs. Just how big a missed opportunity would this be if this Blue Jays team getting this kind of season from their pitching staff was to not make the playoffs. It would rank right up there with 2021 as one of the greater disappointments they've had. Uh, 2021, I, I still feel with the way that Semyon was playing uh, and, and that team was really peaking at the right time, it, that team had tremendous potential, I believe, to go on a deeper run. Uh, we saw Boston that year was just a, a decent team that got hot 
And I really think that, you know, they made it all the way to the ALCS. I think Toronto was a better team than them by the end of the season. It just didn't work out that way in the standings. And I, I think 21 was a huge miss. This year, I think, would be an even more pronounced miss just because of, of where they're now at with, with the windows to win. And also the questions that I would prompt when the season is done. If you And they have enjoyed, up until now, I would say relatively good health. You know, there, there was the bow injury. There was the Chapman injury, uh, which they're still dealing, dealing with now. But I, I would describe this year as a generally healthy season for the Jays. In terms of like the overall scope of what teams face adversity-wise, uh, look around at, at different clubs. Look, look at how many guys the Dodgers have had on the injured list this year with their pitching and the number of guys that have been out for the year with Tommy John surgery, et cetera, uh, whether it's the Rays, who are obviously still running comfortably ahead of the Blue Jays. You know, the, the Rays, that, that roster has had adversity. Um, the Dodgers roster has had adversity. So I, I see no credible reason with the Jays to say, well, there, there were too many injuries, and that was why we missed. I mean, I, I just wouldn't buy that. And it, it, in some ways, to me, Blake, if they miss the playoffs, they need to entertain some serious changes to this group. Because if you can't win in this year with a relatively healthy season and exemplary pitching, I think the Jays have given up fewer runs but all but one or two teams in the big league since the All-Star break. You know, this – this is as good as it gets, Blake, as good as it gets from a pitching perspective. And you're supposed to be able to score enough runs to make that stand up. And they just haven't done it consistently enough. So if, if they're not there right now, um, I mentioned uh, to Ben Ennis earlier, earlier in the week, I, I think you have to put Vladdy out there and see, if, uh, see what you could get trade-wise. If you're not able to sign him, you're now in that range of just two years to go. You got to make a decision, and uh, however unpopular it would be, you got to look at your team and see: Are we a better club if we turn him into other positions of need, like third base in the outfield, and then you go sign a first baseman? Because by the num- by the numbers, he's been an average first baseman at best uh, offensively this season. And if that's the case, can you get an average first baseman somewhere else? and then make a different decision. Can you find the, the version of a Carlos Santana and, and see what he's done for the Brewers this past month? He's probably out, outperformed Vladdy, and Santana was there and available for everybody at the deadline. So you have to look at the, the replaceable players and how you could potentially turn the guys you got on your roster into a more athletic and more competitive group because this year, Blake, they've just been a tick short of where they should be and that that might be the difference between making the playoffs and missing them and this is a a franchise that you know wants to be in the braves dodgers conversation of in the playoffs every year with sustainable winning uh you got to get there more than once uh and maybe win a playoff game to do that but we'll get a look at braves dodgers uh later this week on mlb network john morosi you'll be down there uh to help us tee up that series thanks for making the time out this morning i know you got to jet to some other mlb network duties yes Blake, I appreciate it very much, my friend. Really enjoy the conversation. I listen to this show all the time. You do a fantastic job. So thanks for having me on today as a guest, and I look forward to the next show. Thanks so much. Uh, John Morosi, MLB Network. Again, Dodgers-Braves, this upcoming series. It gets underway Thursday, potentially a little NLCS preview a couple minutes here before we take a break we're going to talk to andrew golden in the second half of the show he's national beat nationals beat writer we'll talk to tim Britton of the athletic uh take a look at that mets rangers series and whip around these playoff races as well uh, a note 
from Kevin Gosman's start last night. I'm sure you heard it on the broadcast, but he has joined now Roy Halladay and Roger Clemens as the only Blue Jays pitchers with multiple 200 strikeout seasons. Uh, Brandon Morrow just didn't have the didn't have the stamina to do it. Uh, apparently, um, Doc obviously had uh, more than two of those. He had three. So Kevin Gosman in some pretty interesting territory now here, even just two years into his Blue Jays tenure. Um, last night was not the Greatest of Kevin Gosman's starts. He himself said he was lucky to get through five, a little tongue in cheek, uh, but still he talking about a lot of stressful pitches in that start. And I mentioned a stat to Ben Nicholson Smith earlier, but I kind of had to rush my way through it. Uh, so to be a little more clear over Kevin Gosman's last four starts, opponents have swung at his fastball 55% of the time when he throws it uh, prior to these last four starts, that number was only 43%. So Guys are swinging at the fastball about 30% more often than they were before. And the overall swing rate is up. We've seen some teams like Baltimore try to jump on the splitter. Philadelphia tried to jump on the splitter. But that was a bit of a unique case because not a bit of a unique case. Unique is binary. It was a unique case because Kevin Gosman's splitter was not very good that day. It wasn't locating particularly well. It wasn't breaking as much as we're used to. Uh, So I don't know that we can extrapolate a ton from that, but we're certainly seeing teams with more consistency come up and try to be aggressive against Kevin Gosman and aggressive early, whether that's overall or whether that's just against the fastball, Uh, the overall swing rate on Gosman uh, up pretty significantly over this stretch as well. It's the uh, highest swing rate that we've seen against Gosman over any five game stretch uh, this season. So we'll keep an eye on that because it is something, you know, not that the nationals are the greatest offensive game plan team in baseball, but when you see it five, six times in a row from different opponents, you wonder if it's something that'll make its way into a playoff strategy, depending on the opponent Uh, tonight's opponent. Once again, the Washington nationals, it'll be Jose Brios against Mackenzie Gore down at Rogers center. That one starts at seven tomorrow's series finale is a three o'clock game. It'll be Chris Bassett against yes. Patrick Corbin still exists. He's still kicking it Uh 470 ERA with like 150 innings. Uh, he is Jordan Lyles NL version. There is value in eating up innings, especially for a rebuilding team so that you don't have to rush your prospects to the majors and you don't have to, uh, you know, ask guys to pitch before the ready burn service time, things like that. He's also a lefty, so we'll see some maybe interesting lineup mixing matching from John Schneider the next two days as they face lefty, lefty. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we'll get the national side of this series. We'll talk to Andrew Golden. We'll see what Patrick Corbin has left. We'll see what Mackenzie Gore offers, and we'll keep an eye on this Canada-Latvia game. Canada up eight right now as the fourth quarter starts over on Sportsnet. Make it up 10. There's a nice little alley-oop. We'll be back after this on Stock Plus on the Sportsnet Radio Network and Sportsnet 360. Diving deep into Leafs, Raptors, Jays, and NFL. The J.D. Bunkus Podcast. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Jays Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy, Canada up 78-61 on Latvia. Uh, that score got out of control since when we uh, we took the break there. So that's nice to see. Uh, we'll keep an eye on that uh, on that final 
there, but uh, it looks like Canada is going to head to the next round of the World Cup at 3-0 with the largest point differential in their second round group. We'll walk you through what that means uh, later in the show. That song was Crooked Smile by J. Cole, which means Mackenzie Gore is a uh, front of mind. It means he's pitching tonight. Andrew Golden, Nationals beat writer at the Washington Post, joins us now. Uh, before we get into Mackenzie Gore talk, man, you are having like the full Toronto experience. CN Tower, OK Blue Jays. Uh, how you doing, man? I'm doing great. How you doing? Yeah, it's been, a, it's, been, it's been a good introduction to Toronto, so I'm ready to keep it going the next couple of days. So it's been great. That's good, man. Um, so it, obviously the, the CN Tower is one thing people do, but one of my favorite things to talk to visiting beat writers about is their first experience with the crowd doing OK Blue Jays during the seventh inning stretch. Uh, what did you think, man? I, I know a couple of you were having a laugh at it. Yeah, I, I was a little shocked, but also I, um, I'm originally from Baltimore, um, and so they, they, they have a, a, a funny song as well. Um, and so, yeah, but I, 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 really, I really enjoyed it. I, I was expecting kind of the, the fans to have the same uh, the same little dance that kind of threw me off at first. It was super funny, and I, I thought it was hilarious. So you're originally from Baltimore. You're on the Nats beat now. Uh, do you kind of look at how things shook out and yeah. be like, hey, man, uh, the Orioles are really, really good, and now I'm over on the national side? What gives? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's kind of funny. I mean, like, like the, the Orioles were bad for so long, and now they, you know, they had all their prospects come up, um, and now they have almost have too many prospects to choose from in terms of guys that they can call up. And so, I, I think the Nationals kind of hope they're in that same boat. But I think they're trending in the right direction, and they're just calling up some guys right now, some young guys. And so, I think you're starting to see um, this team kind of trending in the right direction, where you're starting to see some of these young guys get a chance. So. Uh, I'm not sure if they're at the, at the Orioles level just yet, but I think they, I think they're heading in the right direction. Certainly, we see that uh, in these early games here with a couple of the pieces that were part of the Juan Soto return. We saw C.J. Abrams uh, running yeah. wild a little bit yesterday. We're going to see Mackenzie Gore tonight. Uh, when you look at this Nationals team, and you know you compare it to either the Orioles or, or any other rebuilding team. Now that we're starting to see some of these pieces reach the major league level and have a little bit of, yeah, late season and small sample, but some success of late, um, how encouraging is that for this Nationals org? And what does the timeline look like for this team in terms of when they might get back to being competitive? Yeah, well, well every time we ask them about their timeline, they, they, they kind of say we're not going to give it a, a specific date yet. That we don't have a specific date in mind. Um, I, I obviously fans, you know, we'll, we'll stick to that number if you give them a number. Um, but, but I think that there's been encouraging signs from their young guys. I think this year, this year is always about growth. Um, I think you're seeing it from a lot of their young guys. C.J. Abrams had probably a really, had a really awful opening there. He had three errors in his first game and kind of looked lost at the plate in that first game. I was like, oh, no, this is going to be a long season. But he's gotten so much better um, ever since he moved to the leadoff spot um, right before the All-Star break. And he has looked like a different hitter, completely more confident, stealing bases, um, just, just being more aggressive overall. Um, and, you know, like, like I said, the same thing goes for, you know, Josiah Gray being an all-star. He hasn't looked the best in the second half, but he was an all-star. Um, K. Ruiz is starting to hit the ball well. Mackenzie Gore is showing flashes. So I think you're starting to see um, this team kind of grow um, this season and put some things together. Um, I think it remains to be seen if they can continue it next year, but they've been, they've been really good in the second half. They've been the third-best team in the National League in the second half, so... Um, I think that speaks to how well they're growing and how well they're doing. It certainly does. And I mean, there's probably also a real value to this young group in getting some wins and getting the experience of playing against teams like the Blue Jays who are, you know, in a fight for their playoff life and playing these high leverage uh, games. When it comes to CJ Abrams in particular, yeah. uh, you know, I'm a fantasy player. So CJ Abrams has been on the radar, a young, hot uh, shortstop <laughs> prospect who runs a lot. And look, there have been times where he 
looks good and times where he looks like, yeah, a fun, exciting player who is fantasy relevant, but not quite good yet. Um, where, where, how has his progression over the course of this season been? And, and you know, is this organization still thinking this guy could be a, a star piece within a few years? Yeah, the, the organization definitely thinks that. I think he's he's given them reason to believe that. I think the difference the difference between with TJ is definitely not as it's, it's a lot of young guys' problem is is, is like chasing. When you when, when you chase too much, when you aren't disciplined, um, you know you, you start to reach for pitches that you you shouldn't you shouldn't swing at, and then that kind of leads to some bad at bat. Because I think you saw CJ get into um, a little bit of a habit of that early on in the season. But once he moved in the leadoff spot, um, like I said, right before the All Star break, the series for the All Star break, he. Um, looked more patient, looked kind of waiting for his pitch, and he started to kind of take off. Um, he was getting on base more, and he stole more bases. And so I think, like, you know, that, that month of July was kind of where you saw what CJ could be um, if he's able to not chase. And I think you've seen a little bit of that chasing come back recently. I think, that, I think you know, one of the things I talked to him about, um, sometimes when he gets – when he's going well, he starts to think that he can, he, that he can hit anything. Um, it's actually become a problem, you know, obviously when you think you can hit everything, then you start chasing more and you kind of get back to these bad ruts. So I think it's a matter of him playing within himself and not trying to do too much. Um, but if he can do that, I, I think he'll be a great piece of the future. I mean, I mean, he's played a really good shortstop defensively this year. Um, I think if he can really work on his, his chasing, then he'll, he'll be a, he'll, he'll be their future shortstop. Uh, another young name this team has brought up this. I mean, Abrams has been around, but Jacob Young uh, comes up and look, there's a real speed element there. There's also a bit of an unknown element there because, you know, he barely played at AAA uh, on his way up. He was coming up from AA yeah. where the base running was there. The batting average was there. Not a lot of power in the profile. Uh, where does he fit in for this team now? And, you know, looking forward a little bit. Yeah, so looking forward, I see him as kind of a fourth outfielder type of guy, a guy especially given how important stealing bases is now and the, the emphasis on that. I see him as like a fourth outfielder who comes off the bench and can play a really good, um, can play really good defense and also um, steal some bases. But I think right now he's really get a chance to play every day and prove that he can hit the major league level. Um, like you mentioned, he he was in you know Double A Harrisburg for a while, only played four games in Rochester. But the Nationals, um, you know, in terms of their outfield depth, they don't really have a ton. Um, in Triple A, so he he he, got, he kind of got a quick opportunity, and so I'm interested to see what he does. Um, when you look at the Nationals' outfield prospects, they have Dylan Cruz, they just drafted. They had James Wood, um, they have Robert Hassel, who they got in the one. So Trace, they have a lot of outfield pieces, and maybe Jacob Young is the most high-profile guy. But I think that he's a he's a guy they feel good about. Uh, maybe being a you know a gap to gap doubles kind of guy who can steal bases as well. So I'm interested to see how you know how they start out with him. It's he's uh, another exciting piece. And I look personally for just baseball aesthetics. Uh, I like it when, and Hey, the, this has worked really well for the reds. If you're going to be a young rebuilding team, uh, add some speed, get crazy on the base paths. Uh, I, I like that element yeah. of it. When we look at the nationals outfield of the future, uh, a piece that is a bit of a swing piece, maybe in terms of what the plan is, is Lane Thomas. He's 28 years old, but he has a little bit of team control yet left. He's not a free agent until 2026. Yeah. We all kind of thought around baseball, he'd be, you know, one of the bigger names to move at the trade deadline. It, it was pretty rare to find a right-handed hitting outfielder who mashed lefties. Well, um, that was on the market. It turns out almost none of them moved. Does that signal to you, Andrew, that Lane Thomas is a, a part of this or this team's future, even though he is a little bit on the older end relative to some of the prospects, or is that just that, Hey, this team didn't see the value there and they'll, they'll reevaluate it in the off season or, or next deadline or whenever that value is there. 
I think it's a mix of both. I, I think that Mike Rizzo, before the trade deadline, said that he wanted a all-star caliber return for, for Lane Thomas because that's what he played like in the first half. And I, and I agree, he, he played like that in the first half. And so I think that you know, teams across the league value him as, bit, as more of a platoon guy who can hit lefties really well, um, whereas the Nationals view him a little bit differently as a legitimate piece of the future. So I, I think that Mike Rizzo has no problem keeping yeah, has no problem keeping Lane Thomas because like he really believes that he could be a piece of the future. And I think so too. I, I, I think I think he could be a good complement to what they already have. I mean, if you, if you have a guy who's hitting 280 with 20 home runs um, that can play a decent right field, I think you take that. I think you take that. You know, 10, 10 times out of 10. Um, I think he's been a great clubhouse presence as well. Um, and so yeah, I, I, I think you can keep it up, and I, I think that he's he's gotten better each year. Um, and so if this is what he is. I think that's a very valuable piece of the Nationals going to have. And so I think that's how they view it. Um, I wouldn't be surprised to see him stay on the team long term if, if, if they were if they really believe that they could compete with him. And look, I, 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 as much as I'm sure national, the Nationals would like to keep him, and, and you know, it seems like a good guy to talk to from a, a writer pers- standpoint as well. There are going to be teams looking for him. It is a weak free agent class in the outfield, and there the Nationals totally. are definitely going to get. Uh, calls on him again. So we talked about C.J. Abrams, kind of the big piece in the the Juan Soto trade. Another part of that trade uh, was Mackenzie Gore, who's going to start today. Um, when it comes to Mackenzie Gore, season, I, I know when they acquired him last year, they were kind of like, uh, you know what, like let's uh, let's put him down in the minors, let's let's wait this out a little bit. Now he comes back up and looks certainly better than he looked as a, as a starter with the Padres a year ago. Where is uh, Mackenzie Gore in, in his development, and you know what, where have the encouraging signs lied in, in his 2023 season? Yeah, I, I, I think there's been a lot of encouraging signs, and, and there. I think it's just a matter of from game to game, you just don't know what you're going to get from him. I mean, you you, you could have Alex where he'll strike out. You know, I remember a game against New York earlier in the year, he struck out ten guys over six innings, and you're like, oh my gosh, this guy's going to be legit. The next outing, maybe doesn't look as good as you know, doesn't look as good as you expect it to be. It just depends on the start with him, and like some some, some games are better than others. Um, you know, there's a start two games ago against the Red Sox where he threw, he struck out seven and only allowed one hit. And the game before that, he allowed six runs over five innings. So it, it really just been inconsistency with him and up and down. Um, I think it's a combination of mechanics and just like just 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 a lack of focus sometimes, as he says. Um, but I think he's shown flashes and brilliance of what he can be. Um, he, I mean, obviously he has a really nasty, you know, you know, he's a really nasty fastball, has a great curveball and slider. I think it's a matter of commanding it, keeping it in the zone, and not being off the plate so much. So I think that's kind of what you're going to see from him tonight. I don't know wh- which version you're going to get, hmm. um, but if you get the version, that's a good version, then you have an electric fastball. Um, and then, uh, you know, two, two plus breaking pitches that play off of it. Yeah. I mean, 95 with the extension, he gets down the mound and working it high up in the zone. Those yeah. are not pitch types that the blue Jays have generally done super well with this year. So uh, we'll see now. I, I guess it's mostly righties who pitch like that, who have given them trouble. Uh, we'll see with the, the platoon side uh, here. Fascinating to see, um, you know, how, how the curveball and the slider, and, and I guess a little bit of the change as well play off of that um yesterday we yesterday we saw josiah gray and uh andrew i know you wrote about this at at the washington post after the game it's been a bit of a tough go for josiah gray this last month or so um someone who you know i think there's a a good case to remain high on long term but it's been a a bit of a slog here and you look at the season numbers you know the eras inched back up over four, um, some of the home run and walk issues he dealt with yeah. last year have creeped back in. Um, what has happened with, with Josiah Gray this last month to take him from all-star to, you know, a, a guy they're, they're not really super confident in every sixth day? 
Yeah, it's, it's, it's the walks. The, the, the walks have always been, you know, you mentioned it last year. The issue was that he led the league in home runs and walks. Um, and so this year he, he's cut the home runs down in half and he's, you know, become a more of a fish to contact guy with, you know, he sacrificed your strikeouts for some more weak contact. Um, but when it comes to the walks, the walks have actually gotten worse this year compared to last year. And so I think what you saw early in the season is Josiah finding a way to work out of those situations with the walks. He found ways to escape the damage and that kind of, kind of catches ERA low. Um, I think what you're seeing now that he's not getting so fortunate in those situations. He's still giving up runs. Um, and so he allowed four yesterday. He allowed five in his, last, his previous start. He's just walking a lot of guys and just not the same, you know, just not the same success. And so I think like, I think it's a, it's a mechanical thing. Um, Josiah always had, uh, whenever he plants with his plant foot, his plant foot always, he lands on his, the side of his foot. So he's never in line with the plate fully. Um, and so I think that's something he's always had to work on, always knew that he had to work on. Um, so I think it's a matter of fixing his mechanics and maybe getting him back on track there. Um, but yeah, it w- wasn't an encouraging month of, of August. He had four of his five shortest starts in August um, this season. So kind of not what you want to see. Um, but maybe he can get it back on track in September and finish strong. But yeah, definitely not. Definitely the walks. The walks are the biggest issue. Yeah, it's it's tough. And you know, when those go, I, I can imagine what it's like on the mound to, to have that snowball on you uh, a little bit. So that's yeah. the two young, you know, kind of marquee starters for the Nationals. We're also going to see tomorrow afternoon Patrick Corbin, who still exists, uh, still you know, low strikeout <laughs> but sub five ERA. Look, if we're being honest, I think most of the value in Patrick Corbin is someone has to pitch 170 innings or so this year, and it saves the Nationals from overexposing yeah. young guys and calling up guys before they're ready. Um, what has Patrick Corbin meant to this team from that standpoint? But also, I'd imagine he's a good guy to have in the room as these young pitchers figure it out yeah the, the, the clubhouse you know he, he's, he's one of the clubhouse favorites i think everybody loves patrick corbin he's a student veteran role whether he and actively sought it out or not i think it's just kind of the reality of being one of the older guys in a young team um but yeah in, in terms of pitching like you mentioned he takes the ball every fifth day or i guess every six days for national he's in a six-man rotation um and and he he, he continues and he's consistent in giving you know the, the six innings that you need um, he's definitely not the guy that he was, the high strikeout guy that he was, um, you know, in 2019 in the Walmart World Series. But he's consistently going to give you six innings and, and eight innings. Uh, might not always be pretty, um, but but he will he will give you six innings. I think that's kind of what he's doing for the team this year. Just a guy who's going to eat innings and knows that you're just going to take the ball. He's going to stay healthy. Um, I think he's been a good you know a good mentor to Mackenzie Gore and also to the rest of the Nationals uh, starters. So that's kind of what he's been this year. It's uh yeah it's it's fascinating to watch and obviously a guy who can you know stick around a while being a, a bit of a junk baller type with the the sinker slider combo and just throwing everything everywhere is pretty fascinating. Um, you mentioned there they're they're running with a six man rotation here uh, that obviously means your bullpen's a little shorter. They're in a stretch of, of nine straight game days here and this is day eight of it. Um, is this bullpen feeling the the effects of that six man rotation uh, decision a little bit right now? Well, they, after last night, yeah, but honestly, before that, it was honestly pretty good in the Miami series and previous series. Their starters went 19 innings combined and gave three runs, um, and so the bullpen didn't have to be used that much. So I think in the New York series before the Miami series, they had been used a lot, but I think the starters really really took control and kind of gave the bullpen a bit of a rest, but now you know, you're kind of in a weird position now where they had to cover six innings yesterday, and there's two more games left in the series. Um, and so I think the bullpen is going to feel the effects of it, you know, prob- probably tonight. If, if, if they don't get a long start from Mackenzie Gore, they're probably going to need to go six innings. Um, but, yeah, they, they rely on them a lot, especially Kyle Finnegan and Hunter Harvey, who are the back end of their bullpen. Um, and so they're going to need more production from their starters, especially their young guys, Mackenzie and Josiah. 
Um, and especially tonight, they'll probably need six innings from McKenzie. So I wouldn't be surprised if David Martinez tries to push him as long as he can um, to see how much he can get out of them. Well, the Jays have not historically this year done a great job chasing guys early in games, even if they're not top-end pitchers. Um, <laughs> after yesterday, chasing Josiah Gray early. Obviously, there's a big benefit if you can get into that pen early. Uh, we'll see if the Jays can do that. It, it hasn't been something they do uh, regularly. Andrew, before I let you go, I know this is something that was kind of the yeah. to- the talking point in Washington around the Nationals earlier this month. Steven Strasburg is going to hang him up. Um, what is that? Yeah. What does that mean to you as someone who's who's grown up in that area and been around this team a little bit the last couple of years? Obviously, a, a huge, you know, it, the la- the way things ended the last couple of years around injuries and stuff like that is uh, is tough. But man, his highs were were some of the very highest that this Nationals franchise have seen. Yeah, I, I, mean, I think you think about the excitement that there was around his debut. Um, you know, with the, oh, yeah. you know, thing that he pitched the first time against the Pirates and struck out. I think, it was, I think it was 14 batters and, and, and just how far he's come, the kind of the ups and downs, the injuries he's, he battled through. But I think when you look at his his moment in 2019 in the World Series, I mean, he really carried that team. He had so many clutch moments um, in that postseason run to help that team win the World Series. And so I think when you look at um, the whole of his career, obviously the contract has not gone the way that the Nationals hoped it would go. I'm sure he hoped it would go. Um, when you look at what he meant for that organization, just to, you know, I, I think that. You know, and I, I can't speak for this because I wasn't there with his debut. But I've heard so many of my colleagues say that, you know, like, like that that made Nationals fans believe that baseball could was really back in DC and they could be competitive again. And so, you talk about that when you start there and when he made his debut in 2011 to when he, you know, won the World Series in 2019. I mean, that's I mean, that's, that's some massive impact right there. I'm sure that they'll never forget that. And so, um, I think I think that's a I think it's a it's a sad ending to what you know was a brilliant career for him. Um, you just maybe didn't, didn't end the way he wanted it to. Yeah, it's it's uh, disappointing, but you you don't you know a disappointing ending doesn't take away the the highs that Nationals fans got to experience with him. Uh, Andrew, you have experienced OK Blue Jays, you've experienced the CN Tower now. Uh, what's up yeah. for you the rest of the Toronto trip? I, I don't know. Is, is there anything else that you recommend I visit? Is there anything else I need to do? Like I, I only have two more days left. So if there's anything else, let me know. Yeah, I'll have to. I'll send you a message after because there are about a thousand recommendations depending on the the food that you're interested <laughs> in and things like that. Um, what what's your you know obviously quick take swooping in here, but your read on this Blue Jays team right now? What are your initial impressions or your impressions of them over the season from afar? Yeah, I, I think they're a really good team. I think they're just in a really tough division. You have the Orioles, you have the you have the Rays, and um, I think it's just a division where everybody's going to be up on everybody, and so I think the Blue Jays team is good. But it's just it's just the reality of being in a division with you know with with with, with, two, with two better teams right now. But I think the Blue Jays are going to be a very competitive team, and obviously they have a, they have a ton of talent. Um, and hopefully they you know hopefully they can get the shed back here soon. I don't know how long he's out, but um, but yeah, I think they're a really competitive team. Um, and I think you know if, if they all you got to do is get into the playoffs. Once you get in, anything can happen. If I know they're a couple games out, but you know, as long as they get in, then once you get in, anything can happen. Yeah. They got to take care of business against the, uh, the nationals, these next two, Andrew golden. Uh, thanks so much for taking the time out, man. Keep up the great work and, and enjoy our city. Thank you so much. Really appreciate you having me on. Andrew golden nationals beat writer at the Washington post. Uh, make sure to check out his great stuff uh, over there. Good write up on Josiah gray last night. There's some insight into, you know, gray's side of what the blue Jays were able to do in chasing him after just two innings, something they haven't done uh, a ton of, they got the pitch count up to 63. They made the bullpen pitch six innings. And even though they didn't chip in on a, with a ton of extra offense off that bullpen, it now today looks a, a little more, 
you know, taxed than it did prior. Again, part of that is because uh, they're carrying a six man rotation, which as we experienced here in Toronto for three weeks means your bullpen is a little shorter. Couple injury updates from yesterday. If you missed them earlier in the show, Matt Chapman is on the IL with a finger sprain. Doesn't sound too, too serious, but something that continued to nag him. Hey, sit him down for 10 days. Ernie Clement was the corresponding roster move up. Bo Bichette, is still being called day-to-day with that quad soreness, but he was headed for an MRI yesterday. We're anticipating an update on that from John Schneider pregame today. Chad Green is going to make what we anticipate being his final rehab assignment uh, appearance tomorrow. The Jays are going to have him pitch in the middle of an inning. They have kind of comically kept moving the goalposts or adding new wrinkles. Um, We all know that the reason they've waited is because rosters expand September 1st, um, but... You know, Chad Green's now pitched in back-to-back days. He's pitched multiple innings. He's, he'll now have come in in the middle of an inning. Uh, so he'll have checked off all those boxes. The only update we don't have is when is Alec Manoa going to pitch for the Buffalo Bisons? Uh, we'll continue to keep an eye out for that. Again, Jose Brios, Mackenzie Gore tonight. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we'll talk to Tim Britton of The Athletic. We've also got some texts in the text line. We'll continue to uh, sprinkle those in some good ones in there and uh hey maybe when we come back we'll we'll play ourselves back in with uh david schneider has changed his batting music uh all through the minors he has used the curb your enthusiasm theme if i heard correct yesterday he's now going with the stroke by billy squire uh so we'll uh we'll try to keep the good david schneider vibes rolling uh with that and with tim Britton when we come back on jay's talk plus oh Canada won, by the way, one on one seventy five against Latvia. That uh, that twelve point deficit in the first quarter certainly looks uh, a lot different now. Canada will enter the second round three and zero with a plus one eleven point differential. That record and point differential carry over into the next round. So it'll be Canada, Latvia, Spain, and then the winner of tomorrow's game between Brazil and Cote d'Ivoire. And uh, Canada will play Spain and, and whichever of those teams moves on. Then your record over both rounds and point differential determine if you make the quarterfinals. Canada will, unless Spain beats Iran at a Canada versus Lebanon level, uh, Canada probably going to start round two at the top of their table. So that's fun. Uh, and we'll have all of that for you on Sportsnet. That Canada's next game is Friday morning. We'll know a time in a little bit here. And Dan Schulman will join us later in the week to talk Jays and tee up that second round of Canada basketball action. Uh, again, next is Tim Britton, though. We're going to talk baseball instead of Canada basketball as Jays Talk Plus continues on the Sportsnet Radio Network and Sportsnet 360. Fresh views on everything in the National Football League. It's the Fan Checkdown with Matt Marchese and Donovan Bennett. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Jays Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. Jays get back in action 7 o'clock tonight. Jose Brios against Mackenzie Gore. Uh, Last night they win. But everyone around them also wins. Houston wins. Baltimore wins. Seattle wins. Tampa Bay was off. Uh, And the Texas Rangers won. They did it down against the New York Mets. And uh, yeah, a little tribute video to Max Scherzer that maybe Mets fans didn't seem the happiest with. Tim Britton of The Athletic joins us now. Uh, Tim, how uh, how did that all go over yesterday? Uh, it was funny that that tribute video, you know, about 45 seconds long, maybe uh, longer than the Mets gave Matt Harvey when he first came back. Uh, got, got 
you know, a, a smattering of booze and very few, you know, no, no real cheers. The, there was not a packed house at City Field last night on <laughs> a Monday night in August for Team 10 under 500. Uh, but the the response, the people who were there, uh, we're not ready to uh, we're not ready to fet Scherzer and his brief Mets tenure yet. Uh, how was how was your catch up with Scherzer though? I know you wrote about him for the Athletic and you know kind of revisited. There had been some chatter about what that Mets clubhouse was like, what the Mets organizationally were like. Sounded like you got a, a chance to uh, catch up with him a little bit there. Yeah, I mean, he's Max is. Oh, anyone who's ever covered him knows he's one of the most open superstars that the game has. A guy who's willing and 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 quick to talk about just about anything. Uh, and you know, there was there was a report in the New York Post that that Max and, and Justin Verlander uh, were not on the best of terms, mm. uh, and they were both open kind of at the beginning of the season that you know they they weren't best friends in Detroit. That they have kind of. Uh, the, the personalities clash a little bit. They're, they both got big personalities, uh, but everyone I've talked to with the Mets really going back to spring training uh, was that, you know, they, they got along well enough, you know, they, they weren't best friends, but they sat, they sat together and had meals together. They talked pitching together, you know, they have different approaches in how they talk with their teammates uh, in, in, you know, how they, they tell a guy how to get through a, a struggle that he's going through. But that, you know, as Scherzer said, uh, yesterday, the, the the reason the Mets are are sixty and seventy two at this point has nothing to do with their clubhouse. Everyone I've talked to says yeah, it's, it's basically the same clubhouse as last year. It's just they're not winning, uh, and so much of uh, how we feel about a clubhouse is whether the team is winning or not. You win, you've got a good one. You, you lose, you've got a bad one. Uh, and that's kind of how the Mets feel about theirs this year. That is, uh, yeah, that's the case in every sport. You know, the Raptors go through a coaching change here, and everyone's like, well, what changed? Like, well, they were the same locker room and the same culture and they lost a few extra games and uh, then things, you know, sour and those, those things get focused on. Whereas maybe you can put them aside uh, if you're winning. So there are, you know, a, a couple weeks back, we may have set this up as well. Look at the Mets. They spent all this money. It didn't work. And the Rangers spent all this money and it did work. What can we learn? I know it's something you, you wrote about a little bit ago. And as the Rangers teeter here, I, I wonder, Tim, are there lessons to be learned from these teams in concert now rather than one versus the other? Like, uh, obviously, we don't want to go to the extent of, well, teams shouldn't spend money. Spending money is good for baseball. It's generally a very good way to make your team better. Uh, but the ways in which these two teams approached it, um, what are you taking away from the, the way the season has gone for the Mets? And to a lesser extent, the recent part of the season has gone for the Texas Rangers. Well, I think for Texas, you look at what they were able. You know, their their two best players uh, are are huge free agent deals for for Corey Seager and Marcus Semien. And, and Seager, uh, you know, in a world in which Shohei Otani is not in the American League, might be your front runner for AL MVP at this stage, even though he's missed some time. Uh, you know, I, I think you know what I wrote the other day was that you know even with Texas, I, I think they're two and nine in their last eleven, including last night's win over the Mets. Even with those struggles, this is a team that lost ninety plus games last year. Uh, that uh, you know, it, it, you can still build a good team by signing good players in free agency. I think there there was a little bit of an overreaction to the Mets' struggles this year. That well, you know, you've got to you've got to have all the homegrown talent. You can't really build a team through free agency. Homegrown talent is still the best way to go about it. But I, I think there was a, a segment of the Mets fan base who thought maybe you know what, let, let's not sign anyone in the offseason. Let's let's just try to build entirely from within, and that's not not going to work. It's going to take too long. Um, hmm. And so uh, I, I think. 
you know, one, one lesson the Mets should take away from, from their struggles, their failures in free agency. A lot of the guys they signed were older free agents. You know, most guys hit the market at 29 or 30 and then maybe hit it again at, uh, in their, their mid to late 30s. The Mets signed Verlander going into his age 40 season. They signed Scherzer going into his age 38 season. They signed Mark Canna and Starling Marte and Eduardo Escobar going into like age 33 season. Jose Quintana, 34. Uh, so, you know, they signed guys not to the kind of first free agent deal, but a later free agent deal. And I, I think, you know, if you're signing, you know, like, like their trade for Francisco Lindor and they re-signed him to that huge extension, he was only, he was going into or still part of his prime. And they've, they've reaped the benefits of that. He's been one of their best players uh, for three years now. Uh, so I, I think, you know, free agency is still a vital part of team building. You can't overlook it entirely. Uh, you don't want to rely on it solely, but it's still an important part of building a roster out, uh, whether you're the Mets, the Rangers, or, or really any team in baseball. And sometimes the guys you have to spend money on are your own free agents. And I set that up because, uh, one, you wrote about Brandon Nimmo very recently and his kind of approach to sell out for a little more power. But he's a guy who, you know, a lot of Jays fans looked at as a, as a free agent target this past offseason. Now he's someone who ended up signing a years 162 million at age 30 we'll we'll see how that one ages uh but early returns how has brandon nimmo's uh season played out and is this change to add a little bit more power to the profile something that could stick around yeah it's funny to think about the sliding doors with the mets going after george springer a couple of years ago <laughs> uh put to play center field and push push nimmo to a corner uh and now Springer's the one having a kind of a, a subpar offensive season for him, certainly. Uh, you know, Nimmo in Addy, you know, he's always been a huge on-base percentage guy, draws a ton of walks, doesn't chase outside the zone, uh, really patient at the plate. Uh, and this year, uh, you know, said basically, like, the pitching is too good for us to consistently string together hits. And if I'm up there, two outs, nobody on, not necessarily looking to walk the same way I used to. He, he kind of used to look at every plate appearance the same, like, I've got the same goals. Uh, I want to do the same thing, get on base, put the ball in play, that kind of thing. Uh, and now he's, he's kind of selectively looking for the right times to, to kind of turn and burn on a ball uh, and put it in the seats. And he's done that a lot more really since the start of June. He had a, he had a grand slam off Spencer Strider uh, the first week of June uh, for the Mets. And, and that was kind of the, the turning point of the season. It's basically halfway through his at-bats this year. He's had 15 home runs since then. He only had four before that. So he's already got a career high. Might end up with 22, 23 home runs. Uh, and we've seen this a little bit from him in the past. In 2018, he actually had a year like this uh, when, when the ball was maybe flying a little bit differently. Uh, but, you know, if he can be that kind of power, you know, the Mets offense has had a down year overall, but it has hit for more power this year uh, with, with Francisco Alvarez, their young catcher coming on as well. So they, they think they've got kind of the seeds of a good offense here. They just probably need to add another piece or two in the offseason. So with respect to, I, I want to pivot back to the pitching side because you wrote a couple interesting things uh, about how the Mets are, are trying to build recently. And one of them was about the Mets adding this uh, new pitching lab that, hey, finally they're going to, the headline you use, finally joining the high-tech arms race, uh, you know, a little behind the times with respect to that. And also, you know, something that, that Steve Cohen is trying to change is not having to go out and always spend, spend, spend on pitchers. When you look at the pitching side, what the Mets are trying to do here, and I know you have a good finger on the pulse of, uh, you know, baseball nationally and back in your, your baseball prospectus days, looking at this from a, you know, data oriented standpoint, league wide, um, what have the Mets not been doing relative to some of these successful teams? And, and, you know, in writing about that and hearing about that, what did you learn that, you know, maybe, uh, 
team like the Blue Jays that hasn't done a great job developing major league ready pitching either could learn from this process, even though, you know, the Jays are a little bit ahead with their own pitching lab and things like that. But your takeaways from a how we build pitchers standpoint. Yeah, I mean, it, it was funny, with, you know, after Verlander uh, left the Mets, and actually even before he, he, he left, he, he talked to my colleague Will Salmon and mentioned, you know, I've been talking to him about, like, different ways we can integrate data and analytics into what we do on a regular basis the way we did in Houston. Uh, and, uh, you know, there, there were some fans who kind of bristled at the idea, like, why are the Mets behind the Astros uh, in this? And I, I talked with someone in the Mets organization, and he, he kind of chuckled and was like, everyone's behind the Astros. We're, we're not close to the Astros. We're, we're eight or nine years behind Houston. Uh, and so the pitching lab, which, you know, we've heard of other teams having this five, six, seven years ago, uh, and the Mets are probably like the 10th or 12th team in baseball to get a pitching lab finally, and this, this was something they wanted to build in 2021 in Steve Cohen's first year of ownership. And uh, for a variety of reasons, we're not able to get it off the ground. Then we're finally able to open it uh, this past summer. You know, it's, it's the kind of what, what a pitching lab can do for you is it can help you analyze the, the mechanics of your specific pitchers, the idiosyncratic movements that they make, figure out what's best for them, but also gives you all of this data where you can look at kind of profiles of pitchers. Uh, and then you can say, you know, this guy on this other team, looks a little bit like our guy. He's struggling over there. Maybe we can do the same thing with him uh, that we did with our guy to get him better. Uh, And that's why you see teams like the Dodgers, the Rays, the Astros, guys come to those teams and do much better than they did elsewhere. Uh, And the the Mets, you know, really since that that homegrown generation of pitchers that led them to the 2015 World Series, the the National League pennant, uh, haven't really produced anyone homegrown in the the rotation or the bullpen uh, who's been a standout. So that's where they really need to grow. And this is, you know, this is kind of the meat and potatoes of building a good homegrown roster these days. It's this kind of deep analytics. You know, fans always talk about scouting versus analytics, and they want to mm. they want to downplay the role of analytics. And, and oh, you know, the team the team is doing this wrong. It's probably because of analytics. But you know, in order to develop your players as best as you can, it it, it comes down to having as much data about them as possible. And what what blows me away is when I talk to to pitchers now. Now, I used to talk, you know, when I was covering the majors five years ago, you'd talk to a pitcher about like, oh, like what's your, you know, you might bring up spin rate. You might talk a little bit about the inches of break they have on a pitch, but but that was rare. Now, any pitcher I talk to in any professional <laughs> professional organization will, will immediately start talking about their induced vertical break, the rise on their fastball, and they'll they'll quantify it specifically with inches, you know, I want to get this slider from 15 to 17. That's going to be a big difference. I'm talking about the inches of horizontal break on it. Uh, so it's, it's not just that it's, you know, these nerds telling pitchers what, what to do. It's pitchers wanting that information and kind of building their repertoires off of it. Uh, and that's a really interesting frontier uh, that a lot of teams have already tapped into and that the Mets are trying to catch up on. Yeah, and this is, you know, not to belabor the point, but we talk about it all the time on this show that, you know, analytics itself is not – it's not really a thing. It just, it's more information and the, you know, analytics movement or whatever, or the more analytically focused front offices, it's all about how you apply and communicate that things and communication, probably the most key in terms of major league guys who want to tweak their stuff is like, yeah, it doesn't, the the information of the data is not super useful top down. It's when you can get the buy-in that it's coming bottom up and guys are asking about it and curious about it, where you really see uh, the biggest impact. Um, 
Um, so we didn't have some of that stuff back when the Mets did maybe their best job developing uh, two in-house prospects ever, uh, Dwight Gooden and Daryl Strawberry. They'll have their numbers retired uh, sometime soon here by the Mets. Um, what's gone into that decision now versus, you know, on the 20-year anniversary or waiting for the 30th anniversary, um, the 1986 World Series, and they're going to do it now, I guess. Um, I mean, it's it probably it feels a little overdue from the outside. I'm sure there's more context to it than that, but why the change now to uh, to retire the numbers of Gooden and Strawberry? Yeah, the, the Mets have kind of changed the way they view their history, and, and this actually started even before Steve Cohen became their owner at the end of 2020. You know, that for, for the longest time, that their retired numbers were, were Tom Seaver, who had gone into the, the Hall of Fame as a Met, uh, Gil Hodges, Casey Stengel, their, their first manager. They even took a little while to retire Mike Piazza's number, uh, the second guy they have uh, in the Hall of Fame with a Mets hat on. Uh, so, you know, at the end of 2019, I think it was, the, the Wilpons were still owning the team, and they announced they were going to retire Jerry Kuzman's number and maybe take a little bit more relaxed view toward, you know, what quality, you know, at, at that point it was you needed to go into the Hall of Fame as a New York Met to get your number retired. Uh, and they realized, you know, over at that point almost 60 years, they, they only had two. Uh, so, so maybe they needed to, to loosen the standards a little bit. Uh, and since Steve Cohen has come in, he's, he's taken that to the next level. Uh, you know, they retired Kuzman's number finally in a ceremony in, in 21. Uh, and then last year, uh, they, Keith Hernandez, they did the surprise retirement of Willie Mays' number, uh, which was kind of keeping a promise that, that Joan Payson, the original owner of the Mets, had made to Mays uh, when they signed him back in the 70s. So, uh, you know, with, with Strawberry and Gooden, they're kind of that next tier, right? With, with you know, alongside Fernandez, probably with, with Gary Carter, you know, David Wright is probably due to have his number retired sooner rather than later. So it's, you know, the Mets are kind of embracing their history in a way that they, they really didn't for a, a long time. And I think fans enjoy that. You know, they had their first old timers day in a generation last year. Uh, and it was one of the most memorable days of, of a pretty memorable season for them. Uh, so, you know, there was a, a while where the Mets kind of, you know, felt, a little uh a little disappointed in their history and now that they embrace it a bit more uh it's which is good to see and you know i think it'll be uh a nice moment for fans in a season that hasn't had uh, a ton of them of uh, tim pivoting off of the mets i know you've been a part of some athletic staff stuff looking at these potential playoff matchups and playoff races um from afar and, and th this is a nationals team the jays are playing that you've seen uh, a bunch this year but the jays you know facing this stretch ahead of not a lot of good competition that's a little better of late but then they're going to play three last place teams when you peek over at the american league wildcard standings that texas rangers team you just saw kind of spiraling out of the division lead and now on the fringes of a playoff spot. Uh, what, what do you make of the American league wildcard race here between Toronto, Texas, and Houston, where probably only two of those are getting in. Yeah. Well, I, I think the, the AL West is so fascinating because of, you know, Seattle's just huge surge here really since the start of July, they've been the best team uh, in the American league since then. And, and the best team in all of baseball in August. Uh, but you look at like what happens at the end of that season. I think Seattle ends with, uh, a trip to Arlington for three, and then they host the Astros for three and the Rangers for four. Uh, so, so, you know, what all of the work they've done uh, is going to come down to those final 10 games probably. Uh, and it, it, it does seem to me that it might be difficult for the West to get all three of those teams in uh, just because they, they have to play each other a little bit. Uh, you know, that opens up room for the Jays. Uh, you know, the, the Orioles and Rays are going to be beating up on each other at the top of the East. Uh, you know, with, with Toronto, it, it really just comes down to their offense being what we all thought the offense was going to be. They're, they're, they're pit, the pitching staff has been really good, the rotation especially. Uh, but, you know, you look at, at just kind of, I mentioned Springer earlier, you know, Vlad Guerrero obviously is not having the kind of season you expect from him. Just the offense as a whole hasn't been 
kind of the destructive force you thought it might be the way like Atlanta's has been in the national league. Uh, and so uh, they just haven't been the all around team uh, that we thought coming into the season. But I think with their schedule, they've got still as good a chance as anyone uh, of catching one of those teams in the West. Tim, I saved my most important question for you for last. I know you are a life and times of Tim guy. Have you checked out Steve Dildarian's other show now, 10 year old Tom, which is basically life and times of Tim, but with a 10 year old instead. <laughs> You know, I haven't yet because obviously I'm more drawn to shows about Tim's than about Tom. Of course. Uh, but I, I will, you know, I have, this is the time of year you start drawing up your off season to do list uh, and, you know, watching TV, reading books, watching movies. That's mostly what you do in the off season. Uh, so, so it's on the list for that. And I'll, I'll get to it soon enough. Yeah, it's a, look, I was a big Life and Times of Tim guy, and it's not Life and Times of Tim, but it's it scratches the itch of I want that exact same animation and incredibly dry humor. Uh, yeah, and you could just, if there are any screen grabs with the name Tom, you could just edit it out and, and have a new uh, a new Twitter av- uh, head banner, whatever that's called, where you've got the, uh, the killing Tim now. Sorry, I'm rambling. Uh, Tim Britton, thanks so much, man. Oh, anytime. Thanks for having me, Blake. Tim Britton, senior writer at The Athletic, uh, mostly on the Mets, but a lot of good MLB-wide stuff as well. And uh, just a tremendous Twitter header. Uh, Killing Tim. Pros, we win. Cons, murder wrong. Uh, If anyone knows that show, uh, we we miss it. It was a very, very good show. Uh, Okay, so Jay's back in action tonight. Mackenzie Gore, lefty with 95-mile-an-hour heat. He'll throw it up in the zone. He's not one of those big, tall, lumbering guys, but he does get down the mound really well. And we've seen guys with that late extension on their deliveries, at least from the right side, give the Blue Jays a little bit of trouble. Um, Although one of those guys, Bailey Ober of the Twins, got option yesterday. I think that's more about managing his innings down the stretch here than anything, but interesting if you're wild card three and you may not be going up against a, a guy anymore who's giving you some trouble anyway. Mackenzie Gore against a righty is going to throw that four-seamer, a curve, and a slider. Against a lefty, he's going to go mostly fastball slider. He'll still work the curve in. He's experimented with the change in a sweeper, but not in any kind of volume. So you're mostly looking uh, fastball slider curve. Again, with a lefty on the hill, you'll see probably one of Brandon Belt or, or Kevin Kiermaier, maybe both out of the lineup. Davis Schneider certainly in there. We'll keep an eye on the Bobachet health status because that has a, a trickle down and a ripple as well. Um, Mackenzie Gore, despite just ho-hum numbers overall, uh, he has up that strikeout rate. He's getting guys to chase out of the zone more. He's getting guys to swing and miss more. Um, the thing that is getting him hurt is that like we'll see with Patrick Corbin on Thursday or or Wednesday, and somehow Patrick Corbin has made an entire career out of doing this, but uh, the home run rate is pretty high. Mackenzie Gore allows one of the best barrel rates in all baseball. So that combination of hitting the ball at the right angle and the right exit velocity, uh, he allows a lot of those. He allows a lot of home runs. So that kind of undercuts some of your strikeout stuff. Uh, At least he doesn't walk uh, a ton of guys. So that'll be, Uh, A fun matchup tonight, and then Patrick Corbin at 3 o'clock tomorrow. We'll be with you, obviously, tomorrow uh, to set that one up as well. The Jose Barrios side, you've got a pretty good idea of what to expect uh, from Jose Barrios at this point. A fun thing that I I noticed, I was, you know, Danny Jansen started yesterday. Maybe you want to keep the hot bat in the lineup, but he's also, you know, gets hit by a pitch once a day, and uh, Alejandro Kirk is still going to catch some guys. So I, I took a look at, hey, what are Brios' numbers like with one catcher versus the other? He has pitched to each of those guys 13 times this year, and the ERAs are almost identical, uh, like 0.4 of a run or whatever, but nothing uh, really there 
whatsoever. Uh, for some pitchers, this does seem to matter. You know, Kirk's ability to steal the low strike, Jansen's ability to steal the inside outside strike, how they call games, how they communicate. Uh, obviously, we saw yesterday uh, you need to emphasize the running game, controlling the running game against this Nationals team. But Jose Brios seems unbothered by whoever's behind the play for him. Couple questions in the text line uh, before we wrap up here. Uh, Brian in Toronto says, "Would love to see the Jays be aggressive in the offseason." Thoughts? Yeah, of course. Uh, they've got a, a bunch of free agent holes. Hyunjin Ryu is a free agent. You know, probably that fifth starter spot is something you're checking in on Alec Manoa about regularly. Four of your starters are, are still locked up, but you need to come into next season with better starting pitching depth than you came into this season. And then, of course, third base, second base, left field, DH, all potentially open spots. Uh, you know, you'll try to resolve some of those internally. David Schneider, Addison Barger, Elvis Martinez, Spencer Horowitz, um, Ernie Clement. Some of those spots could be internal competitions, but you're going to have to, you're not going to let four free agents walk, five free agents walk and, uh, and not try to replace them. Couple Ernie Clement questions, friend of the show, obviously. Uh, Kevin from Toronto asks, why wasn't he given a shot initially? Why did they overpass him with DeYoung or Espinal, uh, even though he's been great at the MLB and AAA level? And then Robin says uh, Clement has had good at bats and plays a decent shortstop. Uh, Schneider could play third base as Ken Vladi can hit better. Have we seen the last of Santiago Espinal in the starting lineup? Um, not entirely because, you know, there's a scenario where Boba out today and a lefty on the hill and they just decide that they, they want to go that route. Um, but yeah, he has not been very good this year. His defense is, trimmed off a little bit. His offense obviously isn't there. He's still hitting 213. He's got a sub 600 OPS. Uh, you look at the splits. He's not, you know, hitting lefties particularly better. It's a little bit better, but still not enough that you really wanted it. Like a 595 OPS against lefties is not enough to be a platoon guy. Um, as for why Ernie Clement didn't get a shot earlier in the year, I think part of it is that he hasn't hit like this at any level before. When the organization picked him up, he was not a bat guy. He hadn't been uh, a league average hitter at any level since back in high a ball in 2018. So that's the kind of guy you were dealing with. He was an org depth guy, a defense first guy. He has unlocked some things offensively this year. Um, so part of it was, Hey, make sure there's a real sample here. And this is for real. Part of it is he's working on some stuff and it's starting to click. Let's not pull him out of that and have him sit on the bench and not play for a week or two at a time. Part of it is just inertia. You've got Santiago Espinal on the bench. You thought Paul DeYoung was better given the track record. Um, but yeah, Ernie Clement has earned a shot here. And, and while he's up, he's earned a little bit of playing time. He's in 339 at AAA. And even though everyone's OPS at AAA is really, really high this year, uh, his is especially high, up around 930. Uh, so it'll be nice to see him get a crack here. And yeah, I thought, you know, yesterday the... Two of the pitches, he had that weird at bat where there was a lot of good and a lot of bad where he swung at two borderline pitches, got down 0-2, but then had a good defensive strike and then got jobbed out on a really good take on the outside corner. Uh, anyway, there are more good plate appearances than bad when it comes to Ernie Clement. So it'll be good to see him get a little extended run here. Of course, good to see Davis Schneider uh, get a little extended run here. Um, this is one leftover from the other day that I just want to fit in here. Um, Meticulous from Alliston said... Does all of the Biggio bunt conversation uh, not suggest every team should have a bunt artist coming off the bench for late game or extra inning purposes? It seems like so many situations where it comes up. Uh, I would say to that, having valuing the ability to bunt in one of your bench pieces is certainly something. If Nathan Lucas was down working on his bunt, 
Yes, awesome. If Ernie Clement was organized bunt, great. But you have to have more utility than just bunting. You have to have defensive value, pinch running value, things like that, because the bunt doesn't, it doesn't come up that often. There aren't that many situations where it makes a lot of sense. And then you're talking about also you're burning a bench piece just to burn an out to move a guy up. Uh, yeah, I think I'd rather just for the most part, let your guys uh, hit in those situations. But that was certainly a case where, hey, the bottom of your order, having multiple guys who don't have a track record bunting uh, looked a certain way. Uh, there were a couple of questions the other day about Matt Chapman and David Schneider playing time as well, which are resolved because Matt Chapman's on the IL. We'll keep an eye on the Bobachet injury a little later on. Jose Brios, Mackenzie Gore, 7 p.m. from down at Rogers Center. Ben Nicholson-Smith, thank you for coming on the show earlier. He'll be on the call with Ben Wagner and, of course, on the TV side as well, Dan Schulman pulling double duty. If you need more setting up for this series, Blair and Barker have you 5 p.m. to 7 p.m. Jay, they also have Jay's talk for you post-game. I'm sure Sam McKee and Brent Gunning will talk about it a little bit. I have a, an idea. They might be talking some John Herdman uh, as well, given the news of the day. So thanks to Ben Nicholson-Smith, Tim Britton, Andrew Golden, John Morosi, and to Jeff, Lance, and Jennifer behind the glass. Burrito score tonight. We'll be back to talk about that one and set up tomorrow's 3 p.m. finale on Jay's Talk Plus on the Sportsnet Radio Network, Sportsnet 360.